You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Marilyn De Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. Good to be back with you here, Marilyn. We're uh we're recording this late June now, and uh, it's it's been a it's been a strange June. I've uh, you know the news. We've seen these forest fires in Canada. It's kind of these heat waves in part of the the country. I saw a photo of New York that was kind of covered in Canadian smoke. Uh, so it's really really far reaching. I was just in Scotland a couple of weeks ago too, and saw some plankton blooms that were turning the uh, ocean a strange, beautiful color green. Uh, and I'm reading uh, recently uh, that NOAA has noted that the, uh, the ocean temperature in the North Atlantic is, is up well, four degrees Celsius, seven degrees Fahrenheit for our American listeners in some spots in the North Atlantic. And it got me thinking just about, you know, we, we often take this weather uh, for, for granted. It's great vacation, whether it's great holiday weather, but, uh, Man, it's hard on wildlife and and even our ocean life as well. It's strange times, isn't it? It, it is, and you know, as you mentioned, uh, I live in BC, so we've uh, we've been getting all the some forest fires here. It's been raining recently, so it has helped uh, a little bit. So it's a, and in addition to that, there's also a couple of volcanoes, right, in the news that I've seen um, erupting. So it's definitely strange times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's hope that uh, things calm down. And and of course, our, our our podcast is about seafood and salmon. And and I wonder, you know, what effect uh, these type of uh, environments and and increasing ocean temperatures will will have. Maybe maybe for another episode, uh, maybe we can bring someone from NOAA on and uh, and talk about this and, and give us some insight. But uh, but anyway, before we get started on today's guest, Marilyn, you probably have a trivia question that we'll answer at the end of the episode. I do. And um, our trivia question will probably be something, uh, you know, more relevant to our guest today. So this is a question. According to the latest U.S. Seafood Consumption Report released by the National Fisheries Institute, what are the top three seafoods eaten in the United States? So the United States is key, I think, to uh, give an idea of who our guest is. So maybe, Ian, you can introduce our guest today. Would love to. I'm really excited about the discussion today. And I've been watching this fellow's career uh, grow over the last uh, decade or so um, that I've known the name anyway. So today I'm going to introduce to the uh, listeners, Chef Andrew Gruel. Uh, he's a food entrepreneur and television personality, and he was the founder of Slapfish Restaurant Group. That was an award-winning food truck turned international brick and mortar, and it's based out of uh, Huntington Beach, California. He is the CEO and founder of American Gravy Restaurant Group, which comprises Calico Fish House, Big Farm, uh, Parm Pizza, Two Birds Chicken, Butterleaf, Lolo's Tacos, and 101 Burger. Andrew has appeared on multiple television series, including his most recent role as a judge on the Food Network's Chopped Junior with Meghan Markle. He was the host of FYI series, Say It to My Face, as well as a judge on the Food Network's Food Truck Face-Off. He has made appearances on popular television programs and has been featured in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Men's Health, USA Today. And he was named among the top 25 business executives for Fast Casual Magazine 
as well as featured in Nation's Restaurant News 2017 Power List. In 2013, he was named Top 40 Under 40 Entrepreneurs in Orange County. And he and his wife, Lauren Gruel, were named Pandemic Heroes by Restaurant Business Magazine alongside Guy Fieri and Jose Andres. He is currently the co-host of the SoCal Restaurant Show on AM830 and a regular uh, contributor on various national news channels, but perhaps most impressive is today, he is on the Salmon Farming (laughs) Inside and Out podcast. Welcome to our show, uh, Andrew Gruel. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, very, uh, very. It, it's absolutely fantastic to have you, and it's it's a voice and, and a personality we wanted on this program to really, you know, talk to the chefs, talk to the restaurateurs about seafood and and maybe salmon specifically. So, you know, for our listeners that that maybe aren't familiar with you, Andrew, can you tell me, you know, how you got started in the restaurant and food business, and and it's led you to where you are today? Certainly. Well, I actually. Did it by accident, if you want to call it that, uh, serendipity, if you will. I went to a small liberal arts college up in Maine. I was actually studying philosophy and piano performance. And on my uh, off time, which ended up growing, I was working on the lobster boats, working in restaurants along the coast there in Maine, and really kind of getting involved in the marine community. And I ended up spending more time doing that than I did in class. And I quickly realized that my passion perhaps was not in school and it was in the restaurant industry. So I, I left college and dove headfirst into cooking, culinary arts, hospitality, did an apprenticeship, ultimately traveled around the U.S. Uh, doing various stages and then went back to school to get my culinary arts degree and then subsequently my uh, food service management business and marketing degree in a uh, business program. And then, you know, the rest is history. So Wasn't the plan from the very beginning, but, uh, you know, I think an interesting detour that I took that makes uh, makes me maybe a little bit more relevant, especially in this space, was in uh, 2008. I actually lost my job when the economy took a huge turn. I'm sure everybody remembers that. It was like October of 2008. And I said to myself, you know, I'm going to take some time for the economy to kind of come back together, perhaps open my own place and follow through on a passion project of mine. There was a nonprofit opportunity at the Aquarium of the Pacific in uh, Long Beach, which is the third largest aquarium in the U.S., and they were looking to build a sustainable seafood program. Now, unlike the Monterey Bay Aquariums program, the goal of this program, understanding that 80% of seafood in California is served in restaurants, the goal was to get chefs to understand serving sustainable seafood and what that really means, and then try and educate the chefs to then kind of push down to the consumers. And that was our approach. The, the, the second piece of that with the aquarium program was that the CEO of the aquarium, Jerry Schubel, who was very interested in aquaculture. And he felt as if the wallet card programs, the kind of red light, green light, yellow light, consumer focused sustainable seafood programs were confusing consumers and that they were unfairly hurting uh, fish, you know, farmed seafood species. So understanding that One of my first hires was actually an aquaculturist and a marine biologist, as opposed to kind of a program manager for the nonprofit that I started. And we dove headfirst in and uh, with a huge focus on aquaculture. So it was a great program. It was it was three years. And that was the genesis of Slapfish, which was my sustainable seafood, fast, casual concept that we grew to 27, 28 locations and recently sold. Can you talk about how you got started in there? Like you've become uh, such a. a personality in the industry? 
Well, it started with the food truck. So we were at the front end of the food truck craze, especially in America, before it really became the hot thing to do. So it's funny. I started with a food truck in 2010, and I quite literally went down to the uh, lot where they cleaned a lot of the food trucks. And at the time, it was just all kind of taco trucks and guys roaming around hitting uh, the construction lots. And it was a bit under the table, if you will. And I said, at the time, I, as I had mentioned, I had that connection to Maine. So my goal was to just take a food truck and sell lobster rolls and uh, lobster tails on a stick because I was buying it direct from a lot of the guys I knew back in college. And so I, I went to one of the guys who had a food truck and I said, hey, how much are you making a week? He said, oh, about $800. I said, I'll give you $900. Let me borrow your food truck for a week. So I took this guy's food truck around with just a banner that I hung on the side of the truck and I wrote lobster rolls on it. And I drove around to you know, kind of downtown areas, college campuses. This was very under the radar. It was before they had established any kind of government regulation on this. And I just sold lobster rolls and ultimately grew it into four food trucks over a six month period. And during that time frame, everyone started growing this gourmet food truck uh, craze. And obviously from a television perspective, that was an interesting story. And they wanted to kind of weave that into many of the storylines with the young entrepreneurs. And having been one of the first to do it, I got approached to be a voice in regards to judging and establishing and helping a lot of these young entrepreneurs do that from a television perspective. So that was really my foray into it. And then from there, um, once you kind of get your foot in the door and they like you, and I put that in air quotes, uh, then I had many other opportunities to engage in kind of television and, and develop some of my own shows. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I, I'm interested to know because uh, I just bought a lobster roll uh, in Nova Scotia a few weeks ago, and it cost me nearly $40 Canadian, which is probably about uh, 30 American. What were you selling lobster rolls for back then? $12. Wow. That's a deal. It was, 12, it was a whole, I would do a whole lobster, pound and a quarter. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's significantly more and significantly less. So uh, bring that uh, bring that up my way, would you? I'd love, I'd love that. You do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let, let's talk about the consumer because you have a lot of experience with, you know, people that eat seafood. Just how do we characterize today's food consumer and, and how is sustainability influencing either what they say or what they do? Sometimes that is is different things. But uh, yeah, what, what's your what's your take on today's kind of food eater? You know, and I'll, I'll drill down specifically to seafood. Um, and I'll say this, sustainability is dead. It always was. And I tried getting away from that word even in 2011, 2012, because what I noticed, and especially having come out of the aquarium program, is, is that it was confusing people. Nobody really knew what it meant. What is sustainable seafood? I mean, it's a concept. It's, it's now become an institution, but nobody really truly understood what it meant. And when you define it, it's got various facets, right? From you know, kind of catch methods to feed to um, the, the biomass of various wild stocks. And then you've got the aquacultured species in there, which has its own bevy of definitions. So it confused consumers so much that they were that they were um, almost driven away from eating seafood. I asked a panel of 200 consumers when we were working with the aquarium, you know, what's the healthiest protein out there? And all of them unequivocally said seafood. But then when you asked them what they consumed the most of, it was either chicken or beef. So there was this disparity. And I and in my final question, you know, in this kind of market research was, well, why aren't you eating more seafood? And they said, I just get so confused because of all of the headlines and all of the fear from 
mercury to farm seafood to PCBs to color added, you name it, right? Any of the hot topics that I just don't eat seafood because I don't know what to buy, where to buy and, and how to buy. So then they relegate themselves to eating chicken and beef, which, you know, I don't want to demarket any other proteins here, but I will say that, you know, we all know that seafood is the, the healthiest. And even the people answering the, you know, the research questions suggested the same. So I made it my mission to try and demystify seafood to make it easier to buy, thus the development of Slapfish, which was kind of establishing it high quality seafood, but in a fast casual environment. And I would say that the consumers today are, you know, they suffer with the same affliction. They don't know what to buy, how to buy. There's so much confusion, so much propaganda out there driving them away from good, healthy seafood that they're still somewhat consumed, uh, confused about what types of seafood to buy. Let's just expand on that a bit then. You, you talk about propaganda that is confusing consumers. And I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast. When you go look at a typical menu at a restaurant, it's only seafood that has all these sustainability ratings that you have to, to read and understand before you eat. But the chicken and the beef and the pork just is chicken, beef and pork. Um, simple. That's what you're ordering. So where is that propaganda coming from? Why, why is it confusing? Why has it been confused around the seafood space specifically? Well, I would suggest that other organizations, large organizations, you know, went through and underwent the same kind of market research or qualitative research to determine the same the same end that I came to, that thesis of people being confused about seafood. They also recognized that the notion of sustainability and eating green was on the rise. So there was some greenwashing that occurred, in my opinion, and people started using labels and, you know, various hot marketing terms in order to try and define their product as being better? Did it come with, you know, the um, unintended consequence of confusing people even more, perhaps? And I think that the main driver of a lot of this was the ongoing war between farmed and wild seafood. And that's still the undercurrent when it comes to consumers buying seafood, because the one question that I've gotten and having a fast casual, 28 fast casual locations that focused on seafood, we had hundreds of thousands of customers that came in day in and day out. And I was able to really understand the mindset. And one of the first questions we get when it comes to every single species that we would list at Slapfish and now at Calico is, is this farmed or is it wild? Right. Um, that's always it. And my, my answer, of course, to everybody is it's both. Right. Uh, and, and I, and I say that tongue in cheek because I try and explain to people that it isn't as binary as they think it is. In many cases, it, it, you know, there's, there's release programs where it starts in a farm and then it's released into the wild. Alaskan seafood, for example, you know, California white sea bass is a great success story whereby they actually were able to farm it back to its maximum sustainable yield and then release it into the ocean stock fortification, if you will. Uh, so you know, consumers are always shocked by that. And I have to many times break out the computer, the old Google machine and show people the facts and the stats. But that's what's confusing people. That's what's driving people. So people now use a lot of these labels to try and have a catch all look, this is what you want to buy. Um, whether it works or not, I'm not necessarily sure. But that's still what we're dealing with. What goes into your decision making process when choosing your seafood supplier? And how much does consumer preference influence that decision making for you as a chef? Well, it is it drives 100 percent of it. Right. Um, but what I realized is that after asking people what drives their purchasing decisions, right, for over the years, it, it's always, you know, 
when you're sitting around at a cocktail party, people are going to talk about how they buy sustainable X, Y, and Z, and they want to save the environment. But that that's cocktail party talk. What people really, what drives people to buy certain species or foods or what makes their food decisions when they go out to eat, it's cost, convenience, quality. And at the bottom of that list is sustainability or the eco-friendly nature of the product that they're buying. At the end of the day, that's the truth. Um, and as much as people want to kind of pretend as if they, and virtue signal towards the fact that they you know, want to buy things to help them save the environment, that's not at the top of their list. So what I decided was I'm really going to drill into the quality element because quality is really, really important for consumers and quality determines price, but people will always pay a little bit more money to understand the quality of a species. So I said, okay, how can I connect the two? How can I take this sustainability angle, which drives me from a chef's perspective, I would consider myself an environmentalist, a free market environmentalist. And, but then of course, getting more customers in the door. So I started this push where I started saying, look, sustainability tastes better. Um, sustain, when people ask me what defines sustainability, I say quality, right? If you buy a sustainable product, it's better. And then they would ask me, oh, is X, Y, and Z sustainable? I'd say yes. And it's a much higher quality product. So let's take salmon, for example. In the early, you know, stages of running the food truck, when I would talk to people about salmon, I explained to them when you're buying a farmed product, I can get it to my door much quicker than I could when you go out and you catch wild fish. When you're when you're fishing in the wild, you're going out, you're fishing, you're catching a ton of fish, and then you have to quickly sell that fish as opposed to a farm product from a macroeconomic perspective. You know who's purchased it right ahead of time. You can kind of say, OK, we need to produce X, Y and Z volume. And then there's already kind of this lubricated supply chain in place where it can get from point A to point B very quickly based on almost a predetermined demand. And I can get that fish fresh um, a lot quicker in many times than I can wild. And that's not to say that in the wild sense, I can't obviously get some wild species right off the dock. But that's not always the case when it comes to chefs. Many times it's twice frozen, three times frozen, um, last season's catch because they couldn't sell it or they might be sitting on a large supply. So that's number one when it comes to quality. And then I'll drill down into the specifics about aquacultured salmon we'll use specifically. Um, having visited many salmon farms and understanding the, um, you know, kind of the details and how farm salmon is treated, raised, and then ultimately distributed, I'll give those stories to the consumers and express how that connects to quality. So my goal is to always pull away from the minutiae and the sustainability minutiae and put the onus on quality and consistency. And that seems to be the angle, um, at least for me, to then get the customers back buying that species and change their minds when it comes to specifically farm versus wild. No, that's 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 great information. Thanks, Andrew, for that. Um, just you, you mentioned consumption and I don't have the stats in front of me, but but I know that in the U.S., chicken and beef, maybe pork sits around 50, 60 pounds uh, per capita kind of average and I think recently we've had some of the highest levels of seafood consumption in the U.S., uh, maybe just over 20 pounds, which is nice to hear that it's increasing, but it's still, you know, a fraction of what is consumed for, for chicken, beef, and pork. Um, talking about the health aspect and knowing it's the, the healthiest option for you and not demarketing the other products, how can we, um, as producers and, and you as, as a chef and restaurateur, um, help promote healthy seafood eating. Um, you know, what, what are the obvious barriers to it? What, what's blocking it now? And, 
and what opportunities do we have? Sorry, big question, but uh, but that's for you. No, no, I you know I just did a um, podcast with the National Fisheries Institute or a group on the, um, a marketing arm of that, and they asked me the same question, and I'll and I'll and I'll answer in the same way because I think it applies to all fish. Is that producers and whether it's producers, processors, distributors, or the marketing arms of such, they really need to give chefs just one, two, three, um, you know, responses, pre-written sound bites that they can, in which they can use to educate their consumers about the product. So if we know we're going to get the question about farm versus wild, color added, what's in the feed, right? Take a lot of the, 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 the falsely proven cliches out there. Fish swim in their own poop. They eat their own poop, right? Farm fish. Um, they, they, they inject color into the fish and it's chemicals, right? That's another one. And, you know, we need a, a quick soundbite that's just regurgitated in unison by the chefs given to us by the producers in perhaps a one sheet to educate the consumers at the point of purchase and something that's real simple, something that can be handed out, given to the servers, whether it's a full service restaurant or given to the counter sales team in a fast casual environment or furthermore, even on a retail side, obviously at the uh, seafood counter to be able to educate the consumers within 10 to 15 seconds, right? Here's a fact, here's how it's quoted. You can you can check the source. This is false, you know, demonstrably false. And just right off the bat, hey, fact checking is huge nowadays, right? That's become an industry. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't do the work ourselves. I've established that my myself um, internally with my own team to be able to uh, counter a lot of the false information that the consumers come in with. The problem is that nobody wants to be told they're wrong, right? So let's say you've got a consumer that believed the bumper sticker that said, you know, friends don't let friends eat farm seafood, which we saw all over the United States 10 years ago. And they, they didn't eat farm seafood for eight years. And then they come into my restaurant and I tell them, well, you're wrong. They don't want to hear that, right? That That's almost an insult to their intelligence. So you've got to almost give it to them in a real quick soundbite and say, things have changed. Here's why. Here are the facts surrounding these cliches. And here's a great way to get a high quality protein that's incredibly healthy for you and just taste the difference. Right. And and, uh, you know, in many cases, we'll give samples and we'll we'll even just, you know, kind of comp like a simply grilled two or three ounce portion of salmon so that they can see how delicious it is. Is that something that you're seeing uh, so as a trend among you know, chefs like yourselves or just the whole restaurant industry in, in terms of taking on that role of becoming more of an education tool for consumers as a soldier against fake news? Well, I would say I would say yes and no. Right. So the no is unfortunately due to the economy and the ways in which restaurants have had so many struggles from supply chain to labor costs, inflation, et cetera. It's become so difficult to, to run independent restaurants. In the United States specifically, and you're seeing so many of these larger multi-unit organizations buy out these smaller independent mom and pops that it's a bloodbath out there. And, and in many cases, they're just trying to survive. So they don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to develop some of this stuff. For me, it's a passion project. So obviously, it's going to drive me. Um, but what I would say is, is that a lot of chefs have jumped on the bandwagon. But the unfortunate thing is, is and they because they understand consumers do want some of this information, right? They want to ingest a meal and an education, but they're given the wrong information. 
And I still, you know, uh, to put on my political hat here, I still think that there's just a ton of fake news out there and propaganda related to farm seafood. There's something about it that they can sensationalize uh, and then the consumers immediately jump on it. And a lot of the news and the facts and the science is wrong. You know, I've got a guy that I follow pretty regularly and I won't call any names out, but he's got millions and millions of followers and he goes to grocery stores and he calls out restaurants that are using seed oils and he'll get into a lot of the chemicals that are in our food system. And I agree with a, a ton of it because I do think that the food marketing machine in the United States has been quite dangerous for especially children when it comes to what we're seeing with hypertension, diabetes, and so many of these chemicals in our foods. Um, and being a father of four, I'm obviously connected to it. And then I see the other day he does a piece on salmon and he starts quoting studies from like 2000, 1998, 1996, right? And they're all wrong. And I commented to him that all of his information was wrong. On the one hand, he can't go after all of the food marketing mechanisms that are pushing these sugars on the kids, but then use their same studies to demarket farm salmon. He's used, you know, you can't do, you can't do that just to try and scare people away from this and that all of his information was wrong. And I got completely eviscerated by chefs specifically in the comment section. And they were just regurgitating the same studies. And I realized this is that they're not taking the time to get educated. They're taking a piece of information from a large organization that seems to have credibility and studies from, you know, two plus decades ago to then just go out there and try and take the soapbox and the high horse and, and continue pushing this bad information. And that's what it comes down to is bad information. Yeah. I mean, it, as a salmon farmer for 30 years, I can know it can be a pretty vile place, especially online, um, you know, trying to have a discussion uh, with people that may, in my opinion, have their facts wrong. And it can be, uh, yeah, it can be soul crushing at times, just trying to talk to people. Um, but on that, is, is salmon in a different space than, than other seafoods? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, for salmon, there seems to be many different nuances. There's ocean-based, land-based, farmed, wild. You mentioned the salmon ranching program in Alaska, um, uh, you know, farmed, raised, and, and different species of, of salmon. Is it a different conversation around salmon than it is with any other species that you may have a choice of, of farmed and wild, albeit there's a lot less that are that choice of farmed and wild with other species. But are we in a whole different world with salmon from your perspective? Well, salmon is the tip of the spear, right? So any farm versus wild conversation seems to always just align back to salmon. Um, and that's what people are talking about. So people always come to me and say, I don't eat farm seafood, right? And I go, oh, really? So you don't eat oysters? You don't eat clams? You don't eat mussels? They say, no, I love oysters, clams, mussels. I said, all farmed. And then they said, they say, oh, you, I, I said, you don't eat Alaskan seafood? And they go, what are you talking about? Alaskan is 100% wild. And then I showed them the page of the Department of Fish and Game and how much starts off in hatcheries. I said, that's fish farming. And they're like, completely mind blown. Um, and, you know, so when they, when they say this, they're using salmon as the construct upon which they're building their opinions and all the information about salmon. But when I get into shrimp or shellfish or any other species, they're like, oh, well, of course I eat those. And I'm like, yeah, well, they're, they're all farmed. So, you know, I try and at least dilute the farming conversation across various species because it's never the same with any species. And even within the world of salmon, you know, 
I also explain to people that Atlanta, you know, they, they say, well, I, I don't eat, I don't eat farm sea, I don't eat farm salmon. I said, so you mean to tell me that all you eat is sockeye salmon or, you know, this salmon or that salmon? They're like, no, I, I eat Atlantic salmon. And I said, well, yeah, but that, that's farm. You've got to understand Atlantic salmon is a totally different species than Pacific salmon. And I use both because they have different taste profiles. In my opinion, they're as different as, you know, trout to black cod. They're just completely different culinary profiles from a chef's perspective. So if I'm going to serve, uh, you know, a fish that's richer and it's got a, a mop, but it's got a nice plate presentation and I'm going to use an Atlantic salmon and it's going to be farmed when the wild salmon is running or I've got, you know, a preparation that requires and it's got the accoutrement where I want to use a wild salmon species that's a little bit leaner and it's got a different taste profile. Then I use the wild salmon. You need to start thinking about it as different species and also understanding what good the farmed salmon industry is doing for the environment. Because if we don't have those stocks and those species in order to fortify our consumption, then we're just going to completely decimate all of the wild species. So it's the perfect combination. There's an equilibrium that needs to occur between the two. And then people start to open their eyes a little bit. But imagine hearing that from me tableside. You might just want to drink your beer and eat your fish and chips and get me out of there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a vision. <laughs> So as a high profile chef, you know, as part of the downstream area in the seafood value chain, if you were speaking, we're actually, you are speaking to salmon farmers right now, what message would you like them to know? Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for asking that. The message is that I can't be a one man army. I mean, I get, I would say every single day on social media, I get into at least five, I won't call them debates. I'll call them heated open conversations about aquaculture because I post pictures of my food all the time. And whenever I, and we serve a ton of salmon, whenever I post a salmon photo, it always drills down at least at one point in the comment section about farm versus wild. And I take that battle on. And, you know, I'm not saying that I need an army of trolls like the Elon army on Twitter, but I need, you know, people to back me up on social when I'm the one taking that on. Because it is amazing to me how I immediately get taken out by wild salmon fishermen on all of the facts and i go back and forth with them on this and um when i ultimately explain to them hey I, I love both species it's not an either or they start to back off a little bit and understand okay well it's not as if he's taking away and i said if you can provide for me uh, you know 365 days of the year your product at the same price point with the same consistency and the same quality then i'll go 50 50 on my menu but you can't so tell me logistically how you're going to be able to do that. And there's never an answer because it's, it's a logistical impossibility. That's the point here. If we're not serving people Atlantic salmon in the times in which perhaps if I'm having the conversation with the wild fishermen, if we're not serving people Atlantic salmon in the times where they can't provide me the product on the same level, well, guess what people are going to eat? Chicken or beef. And then they're going to continue eating chicken or beef because it becomes habit. It's muscle memory. So we've all got to work together. So I think that what I've noticed about aquaculture is, is that many times because they do win when it comes to the kind of economic war, because it's such a large supply, they, they kind of say, well, we're going to we're just going to kind of continue doing what we're doing. But there needs to be a lot more communication to help and support those chefs out there, because many of the chefs, unlike, you know, I'm going to do the research. Most of the chefs aren't going to do the research. So they're going to take the one sheet, if you will, and then they're going to regurgitate it. So there needs to be a lot more information coming up coming downstream as you call it through that that chain of information from the producer or the processor or the farm itself 
to the chefs, um, giving them the sound bites in order to, for them to feel educated and continue educating their consumers. Well said, Andrew. Uh, totally agree. And and I would suspect that uh, you know there'll be salmon farmers listening to this podcast and hearing you right now and and wanting to step into that space and help communicate. As you probably know, we've seen some very disturbing political decisions being made in British Columbia and in Washington State as well, which is basically you know uh, leveraging the headlines over the last twenty years of misinformation, and that's you know starting to to create policy and political decisions. And it's very, very concerning. So I, I think there's highly motivated salmon farmers ready to step in and, and start to help with that communication. So on that note, we're coming to the end here. And before we, we answer the trivia question, um, where can people connect with you and, uh, and help you have these healthy discussions with, with other people about seafood? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably the most vocal on Twitter at Chef Gruel, um, just at Chef Gruel is the name. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Andrew Gruel, or anyone can email me, which is my full name, andrewgruel at gmail.com. But once again, you'll find me on Twitter pretty much 10 hours a day in between orders, uh, you know, engaging in these conversations. But they're fun, right? Like, I'm not a I'm not the guy who's going to just get into wars with people. Um, If somebody's got their mind made up, I can only hit them with the facts and I can give them the flavor. Right. Food is the great unifier. And we got to remember that, especially in this time of kind of bipartisan bickering in a toxic political environment food is the great unifier and this all comes down to food and if anybody wants to say it comes down to the environment it doesn't because as a as a free market environmentalist we've got to understand do we want the government which is just a massive entity that you know kind of diffuses their responsibility amongst thousands of people do we want the government to run our environment or do we want local communities to run our environment history has always proven that the government does not do a good job running the environment they're actually the worst for the environment and historically have been. It's the local communities that are at best at managing and running their own backyards. I love that. Well, thank you again, Andrew, for taking your time uh, to speak with Ian and I today. Well, thank you for having me. I could go on for hours about this. I'm so passionate about it. So um, I really would hope that some of the people listening here reach out to me and we can kind of start our own little online army giving people the facts because at the end of the day, we're helping people. I always say that the misinformation about farm salmon out there forces people to eat less seafood, which means they're eating more chicken and beef, increasing their omega-6 profile, which leads to six of the eight leading causes of death in the United States. So indirectly, misinformation about salmon is killing people. Great conversation indeed. And on that note, speaking about seafood consumption, uh, let's go back to our trivia question and um, maybe you can you know, take a guess. I'm sure you'll, you'll know you'll have an idea having uh, served a lot of people. According to the latest U.S. seafood consumption report released by the National Fisheries Institute, what are the top three seafoods eaten in the United States? Want to take a guess? I would I would say uh, salmon, shrimp and tuna, the holy trinity. Yes, you're correct. So in order, uh, shrimp is the oh. top. Top one, yep. salmon is the second one, and canned tuna is the third one. Do you want to try the fourth? Um, I would say that the fourth is uh, tilapia. Wow. Uh, you, you are good, man. You You're are good. good. Well done. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm just disappointed that lobster roll is not in the list. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Well, once we figure out how to farm lobster, uh, uh, Maine lobster, New England lobster, then maybe that'll get up there. We can bring the price down. Yes. That sounds delicious. Andrew, thanks again for your time. Uh, fascinating conversation. And I hope uh, we all connect and, and do some good and increase seafood consumption. Thanks again. 
Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, brought to you by Aquaculture North America. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species.